Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to the Peristyle Podcast on a Tuesday. Today we're going to talk with uscfootball.com beat writer and columnist Dan Weber about what's been going on during the bye week for USC, getting ready for the Thursday night game against Washington. Of course, you have a lot of questions, and he's going to answer every one of those for you. If you have any questions for us now, send them in. Podcast at uscfootball.com is our email address, or you can leave us a voicemail at 641 715 3900 extension 816-646. You can also go to our website, peristylepodcast.com. Click on the left side of the page and you can leave a voicemail there. You can also see all of our old episodes. Um, and if you go to itunes.com slash peristylepodcast, it's a great way to consume the show. You can subscribe on iTunes, leave us positive feedback or any of your podcast apps. If you want to listen to the car or on the, on the treadmill, however you want to listen to the show, you can do that usually through iTunes. So just search for Peristyle Podcast there. Or go to, like I said, iTunes.com slash Peristyle Podcast. Well, what did I bring in Dan Weber uh, from USCFootball.com, where the team had been practicing over the weekend, getting ready for this, you know, kind of strange Thursday night game against Washington. Dan, how are you? What's going on? Doing good. Doing, uh, I kind of like these Thursday night games. So, uh, and I think, you know, USC has adapted, you know, pretty well to them. I think they're, they, they really do give you some, you know, some real pluses. The coaches get to go out and, recruit on a you know thursday friday saturday that they wouldn't have had normally um the players get a couple of days off and then you know they'll come back and then they actually get an extra day to get ready uh you know for the game they got four straight days in pads even though they were off for you know two in the middle but they had two two days last week and then two days over the weekend so uh uh and they get an extra day of uh you know prep time so in a lot of ways, uh, you know, it works out well, I think. Uh, and then they don't have to play the, <laughs> the next, uh, you know, Friday, Saturday and, um, gives the coaches more time to recruit, gives them a little time off and they'll still have an extra day next Sunday. They're going to practice again. So they'll have an extra prep day for Notre Dame, you know, the following week. So, you know, I'm not a big, uh, you know, negative person. And if you cut down the, the time away from class, I know, uh, you know, Jim Moore at UCLA said they were going to miss six days because they were playing two straight Thursdays, and yet one of those is a home game, and the other one is at Stanford. I don't know if they're taking the train to, you know, to Stanford <laughs> or what. I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm a little surprised that he said that would, you know, impact them six days. But I think USC kind of is handling this pretty well, and, uh, you know, it's not a big, uh, you know, diversion or you know something to cause them to lose focus i think they've uh, done a pretty good job with it cool dan okay well i wanted to uh, thank our sponsor for this segment before we go any further uh, michael moline real estate so if you're here in southern california and need real estate help our buddy michael moline can help you out you can go to his website michaelmolinerealestate.com or give him a call at 310-275-4688 so he also works on the usc stats team they do all the stats up in the uh the press box during home football games so check them out MichaelMolineRealEstate.com. He's been a great friend of the show and a friend to me and Dan. So it's kind of cool to have him as one of our sponsors for the Peristyle Podcast. And 
did. I wanted to talk about the the practice over the weekend. I actually went. I did a little bye week on my own. I went to uh, see the Tennessee Arkansas game with my wife because she's a big Tennessee fan. So I didn't get to see the football practices. But you know, we know the Claude Pilon, uh, you know, who actually has started uh, Arizona State. He got the nose guard start because uh, Antoine Woods wasn't able to go. But he went. He went down with a high ankle sprain. Maybe we want to talk about that and any other kind of updates that happened over the weekend during this bye week. Yeah, Claude was yesterday, and uh, Antoine is back. So they, you know, essentially they're they're looking at four starters, I think, with the veterans up, you know, up front, and then they're getting more and more time for the, the younger guys behind them. But uh, uh, yeah, Claude playing well, and uh, you know, all excited about uh, how he was doing. But he did take a a real, you know, kind of whack on that ankle and a right ankle and. It was obvious when he walked over to the trainer's table that he could barely get there and had his shoe off. And, and the longer he was there, the more pain he was in. And he was in a boot today, uh, actually walking decently. And I guess with a high ankle sprain, sometimes, I mean, they really so dependent on exactly where they are. But, uh, but one would think, you know, even, you know, Sark was, was saying 48 hours, we'll see. Uh, you would think he's the longest of long shots to play tomorrow. But, but Antoine Woods has been, you know, in there since they put on pads, uh, last week and all the, you know, full pads practices. He seems to be back from the strain pack. Uh, so, you know, you, you lose one guy, you know, you get, you know, you get somebody else back and they're, they're definitely going to play the young guys more, I think, every game. Uh, so there's that. Um, they're trying to, I think, really see, how good Kenny Bigelow can be. And so, uh, you know, keep your eye on that defensive front because they're a big part of, uh, you know, where this team has to get better to become, you know, the team that a lot of people think, that, you know, they can be. Uh, Kevon Seymour, I think, is, is clearly back. Uh, the, you know, fairly significant brace he's got on that, uh, on that, I guess it's the left knee. Uh, but he seems to be able to, you know, do everything now. He certainly was in on the team uh, stuff, the contact stuff. Uh, uh, seemed like, uh, I mean, I think what we were noticing at first was he'd have a, you know, big play, big exertion, whatever, and it was tender. And you could tell now that doesn't look like he doesn't have any bounce back issues. Uh, you know, he can go hard one day and come back the next day. Darius Rogers is running, looking good. You wouldn't know that he's got a hamstring, but whether you put the kind of pressure on, he hasn't really been in contact work, uh, even though he's been in, uh, you know, was in pads yesterday and, um, um, you know, out there with him today and doing a lot of stuff. But uh, I would think he's alongside. So start kind of classified him as are they going to be role players, emergency players, or not players at all? And I think you might have, you know, one of each there. And I can, or, and Keyvon probably a little more than a, you know, a role player. But, um, um, so they, I think that's, they're still in, you know, really relatively good health. I mean, it's pretty amazing. And they think some of that is because they've been playing so many players and that, that that's really, uh, you know, a factor. And, uh, it's an advantage that they, you know, they think they've got. Yeah, I mean, that it's got to be something. Yeah, I know they have the GPS stuff, but this team is really, really healthy. And you, you know, you've had some, a couple starters miss some games, but no one really significant, like out for the year. Uh, you know, the, the Kevon Seymour thing for a couple weeks, uh, certainly, 
you know, had an impact on this team. And maybe, you know, who knows if he was there against Stanford, if that would have changed things a little bit. Maybe a Dory Jackson plays more offense. I mean, it, that could have been a factor for sure. But, you know, it, to, to see a team like this, you see, you know, UCLA having arguably their best player at all three levels of the defense going out for the season. Um, and a lot of teams have, we've seen that happen. Nothing really like that for USC. It's just health wise been pretty good. Yeah, and you look at the, that's what I think a lot of people do. You look at the arch rivals. I think that's Notre Dame's up to five season ending injuries for starters or regulars. UCLA had the three guys on defense, uh, you know, that, uh, that are gone, uh, including Miles Jack, who now is really gone, uh, uh, from UCLA. And, uh, I, it's like, that was an interesting point Sark made <clears throat> last year where I think he talked about USC with 19 season-ending injuries, and that wasn't the case at Washington, that they had, you know, the year before his last year at Washington, that they would had, you know, one or something, a very small, unbelievably low number. And um, here it is again. Uh, they, uh, I will say this. I think they've always, even before they put the catapult GPS system on, they've always monitored their practice uh the amount of plays in practice, and I think they've done a, you know, a good job with that, and and it it does seem to be a factor, as does having enough players, and 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 they probably learned over the years, these kids have learned on their own, you know, with the scholarship limited roster, you know, and the the numbers limited roster, uh, how do you handle that, and there may be. You know, of all the negatives that were associated with the NCAA sanctions and the scholarship numbers, one of the, you know, pluses might be, you know, they've learned the ability to negotiate, uh, you know, themselves through practice and, uh, and, um, maybe it's, uh, you know, playing out this year. Um, going into this game, Dan, it's been kind of interesting in the Pac 12, you know, with the, the four games over the weekend. Stanford's looking really good. Um, you know, Arizona State bounced back and obviously played well against USC. Washington's a, a team that I think can be dangerous. Um, not the, you know, not really a power team from the Pac-12 North, but certainly I don't think, you know, being Sark's former team, anything that USC can overlook. Um, any thoughts kind of watching practice the, you know, over the weekend and the past couple of days? Well, I, of what you're going I think they're, we talked about, you know, I asked, Start today. If there any emphasis that last uh, last game, he hit it right. I mean, his big emphasis with a thirty-minute, you know, video and presentation on, you know, turnovers, takeaways, how to scoop it, and you know, all of the things, you know, how to pick it up, and he, you know, he hit it exactly right because that's what they did in that Arizona State game. They, you know, took advantage of, you know, turnovers. They they scored with turnovers. They turned the game around with turnovers. I said, do you have something else up your sleeve this week? You know, are you, uh, he said, you know, I'm not going to abandon the whole emphasis on turnovers. He said this, he thinks this team can be really special there if they focus on it. And, and he said, I'll be honest. He said, I did show him a video today, uh, before practice. And he said, the video ended with Cam Chancellor punching the ball out, uh, you know, at the goal line, uh, for Seattle last night. And what one guy could do, one play, one split second, and you win the game that you're absolutely going to lose. And uh, he said, I think, he said, so we're going to stay with that. But he said, I think the thing that you learn, uh, 
last weekend where he gets to watch a bunch of college games that maybe otherwise he wouldn't is you really do have to you have to get better every day in practice and you've got to be able to bring that to the game on Saturday and he's calling it uh they're working on sharpening their sword and that's something he said you have to do every single day sharpen your sword and then you got to bring that thing to you know, Saturday, and you better be ready to use it. And uh, he said, you sit there and watch some of the games on television, and you realize you don't bring your, you know, you don't bring your sharp sword to the game. You're in trouble. And uh, he said, I think that happened to a lot of teams, and, and we can't let it happen to us. But he said, you know, just more and more you're aware of uh, of how you, you've got to be, uh, you know, you've really got to be ready to play. And the only way you do that is by being ready to practice every single day. So that's the story and the theme that they're, uh, you know, and with a young team, I think it's a really good theme because they've got the most, uh, you know, ability to improve. I mean, these are guys that can get better and better and better. And this is what I think Pete's teams did so well is the uh, the way they improve from, you know, week to week. They get to November, and they were, you know, unbeatable. And then they get better from their last game to the bowl game. And, I mean, almost nobody does that. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, that's a, a theme I think really worth pushing, uh, especially with a, with a young team. I think USC has the second – they're tied for the second most newcomers to play TCU has played 36 first-year, first-time players this year. USC, with 33, is tied with, <clears throat> I guess, Boston College. And I'm trying to think, Kansas, uh, the other two teams with 33. And with 15 true freshmen having played, USC is behind uh, only, uh, I'm trying to think, who's, oh, Kansas, oh, no, excuse me, Tennessee and Georgia in the SEC. And it's probably not working out so well for those two. <laughs> and then uh, Army. I think the only there's only three teams out of the 128 FBS teams who are who have played more true freshmen than USC. So, uh, so they've got they've got a way, you know, to to say, look, guys, we should be a lot better by the end of this year if we keep getting better every week. And so. You know that's their uh, that's their story, that's their theme, and and they're sticking to it. Well, let's uh, jump into some of the questions, Dan. People had some bye week questions for you, like about the team and some different stuff. So I'll play this voicemail one for you first. Uh, here you go. Hello, this is Jeff from El Segundo. Uh, this statement is for Dan, and Dan, if you want to say anything about it, uh, that would be great. Uh, I actually want to thank you uh, for your response to my question last week. Should the Trojan fans wait a few years for a better football team? You very wisely pointed out to me that to talk this way only hurts the players and the coaches. As you pointed out, it really is one game at a time. So, Dan, I really appreciate that. Thank you. And, Ryan, I really appreciate you setting up this podcast. And with the new format, it's great. Fight on. Well, okay. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, we'll take those kinds of statements, uh, you know, every time we get them. Yeah, I think, uh, you got, you know, it really does. You can't even guess, I don't think, how, how, how a season is going to turn out. 
based on the game or whatever. I mean, uh, you know, everybody can point to Ohio State last year, and you think, gosh, you know, I mean, I remember, I think I was driving home from a USC game, and I was listening to their Virginia Tech game and thinking, holy cow, how bad is Ohio State? And here they are, you know, you saw where they ended up. Uh, so I think USC is in a place where you, you could say, hey, they can end up there. I mean, I think, you know, I don't know how many teams are in that place. So, you know, are there a dozen maybe? I don't know. That you could say, well, you know, if everything goes well and they get better and they figure it all out, and they, do, they use their players exactly, you know, correctly and they, you know, get every break and they got a chance. So I think USC is one of those teams that's got a chance. And so, yeah, I would never – with this group, if you've got a Cody Kessler and a Trey Madden and, uh, you know, those five senior D, you know, D linemen and, you know, Lamar Dawson, Anthony Stroud, Kevin Seymour, those guys, I don't think you want to look to next year. I think this year is exactly where you want to be looking. Uh, Terry had had a question, Dan. He said, can you explain how the scout team gets prepared to imitate the next opponent and who is the scout team coach? Do they start their review and study of the next opponent before the rest of the team begins preparing? Thanks for the great work from Tarion. Yeah, they do really coach them up, and they uh, that's a lot of what the grad assistants do. And, uh, and you'll see, you know, for example, Clay Helton, when they're going against the scout team, Clay will make sure that they're in the right place and, uh, that, you know, that their scout defense, for example, is replicating, you know, the defense USC is going to be facing. And, uh uh, I, I've been very impressed with the scout team this year in terms of, uh, just their athleticism, their enthusiasm. They, and, you know, if they make a play, if they get to the quarterback, whatever, I mean, they're high-fiving one another and the, you know, the grad students that are working with them are high-fiving them and, uh, they're giving them a really good look, I think, this year. And, uh, I think it's, it, it'll pay off and I think it probably already has, but, uh, but yeah, they do, uh, they definitely, I mean, you know, the kids, for example, they know, uh, <clears throat> used to be they wouldn't pick up their jersey until they got to the field, but, you know, now when they've all got the numbers, um, uh, you know, corresponding to the teams that USC's playing, and, uh, you know, they've got those on when they come out, and they know who they are, who they're corresponding to, and, uh, what they're expected to do, and, uh, uh, I think they've, I think they really upgraded the, the way the scout team is, is working. And I think partly that's because they've got a lot more guys, uh, a lot more athletes who, you know, they can, you know, devote to the scout team. And, uh, it's, uh, I think it's, they're doing a nice job, but they do coach them up a lot in terms of, uh, wanting them to know, to look exactly like this week's opponent. And, uh, and this kid's doing a nice job and you gotta give them credit. You know, if you're a quarterback, like a Sam Donald or a Connor Sullivan, you're basically uh, uh, having to be somebody else and run somebody else's offense, uh, you know, all week. And uh, and they do a pretty good job. Uh, let's go. We have another voicemail question for you. Let me play this. Hi, Ryan. This is Al from Fresno. This question is for Dan. Uh, Dan, I'd like to know that uh, you've been in both practices for Coach O and for Steve Sarkeesian. And I'm sure a lot of other people want to know this answer. Uh, is the intensity the same in Steve Sarkeesian's um, uh, practice as it was in Coach O? Because when you watch the games, especially when we play the the games we're supposed to, we should win. 
like the Stanford games or the Oregon's or the um, or Notre Dame's. Um, is the intensity the same? Is that fire there, or the where you see these guys that are ap, you know ready to get after the ball and, and really want to get out there and show what they have, or is it more relaxed or uh, like under Kiffin? Uh, because you can the the difference on the field between Coach O and Kiffin was night and day, and it seems to be the same way with Sark. I want to know uh, if it's different in practice. Thanks. Fight on. Yeah, I think uh, the comparison probably would have been, you know, between uh, uh, Coach O two years ago and then Sark last year. I thought because both teams were, you know, scholarship limited. And I do think that it was the second year of scholarship limited, you know, USC team when, when O took them over. Uh, and both of those teams last year and the year before, uh, you couldn't practice as long and you probably couldn't practice as hard for as long because you just didn't have the bodies. I mean, and, and I think O was more comfortable in his second year and his eight games uh, coaching a scholarship limited team than Sark was in his first year last year. I think uh, if you look at what, you know, USC did, for example, uh, when they beat the number four Stanford team and essentially played just 12 guys on, on defense and somebody, you know, a 13th guy played, played a player too. Uh, that's amazing. I don't think that would have happened last year. I just don't think that, that Sark and, and, and that staff really hadn't gone through it and didn't exactly understand it. Although they think by the time at the end of the year, when they got to the Notre Dame game, they said, what the heck, let's just go play. And I think that helped. But, uh, but, uh, this year, I would say the intensity is, is really been good. And I think, you know, part of that is you've got all those freshmen that can play. You've got the numbers up. You've got, you know, you can go into the third team and just don't think they're afraid of what happens if this guy or that guy or whatever. I, I don't, you don't, see quite that same, uh, you know, protectiveness of the numbers that you, you know, that they felt like they had to do last year. <clears throat> and I think it did catch up with them. Uh, they probably overthought that in the second half of games, which, uh, and then probably, you know, overthought it <clears throat> a little bit in terms of their preparation as the season went on. And uh, I think it, it's showing this year that that they're not doing that. And so, you know, it wouldn't be a direct correlation in terms of how they're practicing this year with, say, how Coach O practiced two years ago with, you know, so many more players that they can, you know, put into games. I just think they're probably going at it about as, uh, about, you know, what you want to do is take it up to game intensity and game tempo so that you're giving them as close to game situations and conditions as you possibly can get them to and uh you know and of course peach teams the kids always said oh it was even tougher you know in practice than it was in games so uh, if you can get it to that place uh you're doing a pretty good job and i think they're doing a pretty good job uh uh right now uh not sure you know the you know stanford week i think stanford week one of the issues has been having as many players as they're playing, do you get them all enough time? I mean, I think, you know, it's it's an art. It's not so much a science. It's more of an art, I think, in terms of mixing, 
and matching the players and how long do you go and how much time do you give every one of them. And, and, and you know, I, I, did they, you know, maybe not quite get that mix right, you know, in the Stanford game? And, you know, or was it more schematic uh, that Stanford did all the right things and USC didn't? I think it was probably a little bit of both. But I, I think they understand now that if you don't have the physicality in practice, you're not going to have it in games. And uh, I think that's kind of a reaction to last year, and I think it's uh, it's the right way to go. We have uh, Jane Ukaipa says, not sure how I feel. As a Trojan fan, I despise, and he calls them F-U-C-L-A. Uh, he's talking about the UCLA Bruins and their sure. fan base. And I'm loving this loss by, and he calls them the gutties. However, would it have been better and perhaps more satisfying for the Trojans to beat an undefeated UCLA, presuming they could have managed it? That's from Jay and Ukaipa. I don't know. I mean, I... I think the more time you spend thinking about the other guys, you know, I'm not convinced that's the the most productive way to go because you really don't have much control over it. I mean, I I think one of the things that was interesting is you look at the UCLA game and you say, wow, you know, I mean, I had a feeling they were going to be in trouble because they've kind of been beating teams or dominating teams even with the uh, Heisman Trophy uh, projected uh, quarterback. Uh, they were basically able to run on people. And you got the sense that we were there at Arizona State. They weren't going to let you run on them. I mean, they're not going to, they're coming with more people than you can block them with. And if that leaves them open to what USC did, you know, down the field and, and throwing the ball into the flats and all that, well, they're going to accept that. And here you go. UCLA says, you know, we can just line up and run it out. You know, we're going to be fine. And, UCLA wasn't. I mean, they had more, they had more defenders than UCLA had blockers and basically, you know, put US, UCLA in the hole. So I think that was worthwhile watching to say, well, okay, what, what Arizona State did to USC, they did to UCLA. And, uh, the game went kind of the way you thought it would if UCLA didn't really try to do some different things on offense, which they didn't. And, uh, so other than that, Ian, I think trying to, project where this is all going to go. I mean, you could look at UCLA schedule and say, hmm, I mean, for example, even before the Arizona State game, people were picking USC to be the favorite to win the Pac-12. And I think one of the things they were looking at was um, UCLA schedule. And they play Stanford on the road this week. Uh, they play Utah on the road the week before they play USC on the road. I think there are a lot of people saying, you know, that's asking an awful lot to beat those people on the road with a freshman quarterback. So I think a lot of people were saying, you know, in USC, and then after USC beats Arizona State, they said that probably puts USC in the driver's seat. Utah has to come to USC as well. So, and then I think a lot of people were thinking, you know, they'll, that means maybe a rematch. They look at the Oregon game and say, mm, that doesn't look such, like such a difficult road game now. And I think there are people were saying, uh, you know, that probably sets up a USC-Stanford rematch. And looking at all the things that went wrong in that first Stanford-USC game, I think you could make the case that uh, uh, a young USC team will have matured and the coaches will have figured some things out based on that first game that probably put USC in a fairly decent position <clears throat> to win that game. So 
But, yeah, I'm not going to try to overthink. I mean, when you remember last year, USC beats Arizona, loses to Utah, uh, loses to UCLA, and yet Arizona wins the South. The one team USC beat ends up somehow surviving the South where the teams that beat USC, uh, Utah, Arizona State, and UCLA didn't win the South. Now, figure that one out. I mean, you almost can't. So I think trying to guess who who, who you should be rooting for in any one of these games, uh, I just don't think you can. Yeah, I agree with you, Dan. And look, if if what if USC loses a couple more games and then and UCLA goes on a run and USC beats them at the end of the season, is it is that going to be more satisfying? Not winning the South, I think you have to worry about what USC does. UCLA has been winning the last few times they played by double digits. I think if if USC beats UCLA, if you're a USC fan, you're going to be you know overjoyed, even if UCLA loses a whole bunch of games or they're undefeated. I just don't think it's going to matter all that much. So to worry about, oh, well, UCLA could have been undefeated when we played them. I did, to me, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I don't, I don't think you should worry about it. No, that's too many things to think about. Yeah. Just, you know, <laughs> think about the things you can control and that you can root for USC and, uh, you know, however you can help them that way and, uh, and, and, and let UCLA do their own thing. You know, I mean, I think there were an awful lot of UCLA I don't know what it was. I think it counted 10 or 12 threads about the UCLA, uh, or about, excuse me, the USC Arizona State game. And, you know, how they were, you know, watching that game and a lot of their fans and, you know, commenting on it and how bad Arizona State is and how much they hate USC and gosh, why, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, on and on, and I'm thinking, gosh, why would you even be paying that much attention if you're a UCLA fan to USC? And secondly, you know, you got to play them the next week. I wouldn't keep putting Arizona State down. But I think that was a tough game for the UCLA kids. I think, you know, if you see the fan base, he has absolutely no respect for Arizona State, and all of a sudden Todd Graham was a terrible coach and blah, 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 blah. I think that is, that actually does impact the team. I think it's, it was hard. I was, you know, having just been a high school coach, but that was a hard coaching situation. If you're UCLA trying to get your kids to take Arizona State seriously when they're down 35 to nothing at the end of the first half to USC, that was just, that was almost impossible, I think. So, you know, I would I wouldn't spend so much time uh, trying to you know handicap those games that don't involve USC. Um, we got a few more questions for you, Dan. Tarek said, "Should we be concerned that either Chad Wheeler or Zach Banner will jump into the 2016 NFL draft?" I thought you were you were saying, "Will uh, Chad Wheeler or Zach Banner will jump off sides?" <laughs> <laughs> that might be a concern. That's a concern. <laughs> uh, you know, I think whatever happens, happens. I would not be concerned about that. I mean, I'm not saying you, you don't want it to happen or you do want it to happen. Whatever, you know, to be honest, whatever is the best thing for those kids, you hope they do it. You hope they, you know, get the best advice, uh, make the best decisions for themselves. If they choose to do it, then you support them and you don't second guess them. And, uh, that's all you can do. Um, and you just 
hope you've got, you know, recruiting in place where you have somebody ready to go and you're, you're developing your younger players to where you have somebody ready to go. And, um, you know, are you better off if they play well enough this year that if they perform well enough that they're ready to go or that they think they are? Well, then maybe you've gotten a really good year out of them this year. And, you know, I think that's their call. And I don't think that's one where you say, oh, you got to do this for the team or take one for the team or whatever. And I know there are people saying that about Miles Jack. How can he leave the team? You know, I don't, I don't see it that way. I mean, there are guys who've left that probably shouldn't have left and I would have told them not to leave. But, uh, you know, ultimately, again, I just think that's something you don't have that much control over. And if you hope that if they do leave, they leave on a, on a high note where they're getting really good advice from people and not self-serving advice from agents who just, you know, hope they get lucky and, you know, get a hit with somebody and, you know, convince them to leave school. Um, so, no, I, I, I'm not going to worry. I don't think you should worry about that. We have another kind of draft question that sort of turns into an offensive scheme question, but I'll read it to you. He says, do you think that Cody Kessler – will go in the first round of the NFL draft. It seems to me that with hardly any snaps under center in his career, most NFL scouts will grade this against him. I believe he took a few snaps under center in the red zone against Arkansas State. Does he not feel comfortable under center, and does our offensive scheme require him to be in the shotgun nearly all the time? Don't you think our run game could improve north-south with our QB under center? That's from Jeff. Yeah, and I think you'll see more of that. Um, I, I do think the, you know, it's not Cody being uncomfortable. I think, you know, there is a specific issue. You know, Max is six foot six and he's got arms of a guy bigger than that. And I do think there has been, uh, some issue with him getting the snap in exactly the right place consistently. And, uh, so, uh, I think, you know, and I don't know that that used to be a factor to some extent going into the NFL, I don't think it's a factor now much at all. I don't think it'll be a factor at all for Cody. I think he, he'll be fine handling, uh, you know, the snaps under center. Uh, but, uh, but don't be surprised if you see, you know, you'll see some of that. And, uh, uh, but it's not anything, you know, that affects, uh, affects Cody, I don't think. Um, and, uh, I, again, I mean, I, I used to see, you would see guys like, uh, you know, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, where they were basically, you know, doing both. You don't see that much now. Those guys are pretty much in the shotgun all the time. Uh, but, uh, but I think Cody will be fine. As to where he's going to go, I think so much is dependent on how this team does and how people get to see him against really good competition and, you know, week after week after week and, you know, for a kid like, you know, Cody, getting into the playoffs, I think really, really will matter and, and getting to go against a couple of other defenses. And, you know, basically you get three playoff games. If you, if you can win the South, okay, that means you've already, uh, you know, survived against Utah and, uh, UCLA and Arizona and you'd have to survive against, uh, maybe a Stanford and the, you know, championship game, and then you get one or two more. And so I think for Cody, it's like also the way, you know, Pete Carroll used to always talk about Heisman is that that's a team award. 
And, you know, it's great because it usually means uh, that the team's, you know, done really well. So I think Cody uh, can be one of those guys who the more they get to see him and the more he has success in really big games, uh, you know, the better chance he's got, you know, got to be drafted. I mean, I think one of the things that hurts him is he's still listed at 6-1 than he was as a freshman when he came in, and he's clearly, you know, bigger than that. And I would say would up, update some of those things. I mean, I think the scouts obviously will know will know that, but, but there are things, and, you know, I've probably told him a bunch of times that I think you ought to not wear the, the uh, shoes that look like Johnny Unitas wore them, uh, but, uh, Cody's, uh, you know, he really, those are linebacker shoes. Those are basically the same shoes that, uh, uh, gosh, I'm trying to think. Some of the linebackers were, uh, oh, TJ McDonald. I think those are like TJ McDonald's shoes, uh, that Cody wears out there. He just wants <laughs> something really solid, but it doesn't make him look like, uh, an acrobat when he's taken off and running. Uh, he, you know, he looks like a throwback guy. Uh, he's more athletic than anybody gives him credit for, and Clark was talking about that today, that that may be the one most underappreciated thing about this year is how athletic and how, you know, how much escapability he's, Cody has shown in the pocket and the ability to make plays with the rush on him. And uh, he said probably we haven't talked about that enough, but that he's done such a good job of that. So, you know, we'll see if he takes sophomore. And uh, if this team goes far enough and, and, and gives him a chance to have success against really good defenses, I think that, you know, will really impact, uh, you know, Cody's uh, draft situation. We have one last one for you, Dan, from Marcel and Diamond Bar. He said, in light of what's happening with uh, University of Louisville's basketball program, how do you think the NCAA will revise its policy, policies and investigations to schools who have done much worse than what USC did, or will they, or will they, secondly, how do you think, oh, I'm sorry, or or will they do, I guess he, he meant to say. Um, yeah, so that was the kind of question I was going. Yeah, I don't even want to predict, you know, what they're going to do. I mean, a lot of what the NCAA does is how does it make them look, you know, and, and I think in the USC case, they thought the whole country wanted them to take USC down, so they said, yeah, we'll take them down. We have to make up the evidence. Yeah, we'll do that. Uh, we have to push it through, uh, you know, with people who don't know what's going on and we'll get them to vote for it. Yeah, we'll do that. We want to, you know, just throw out a bunch of penalties that have no connection to reality. Yeah, we'll do that. So, uh, I think you always have to see, I think one of the things that's happened with, uh, if you look at, uh, Jim Bayheim and, and, uh, uh, Larry Brown, is they're coming down on some of these older established uh, Hall of Fame basketball coaches, and this would be the third one if they uh, they come down on Rick Pitino. I mean, they have the ability to do it. I mean, they clearly they one of the places they changed the rule, and probably for the good. This the problem is, do they you know follow it and do what they're supposed to do? But they changed the rule that said basically. We don't want to keep uh, uh, throwing these assistant coaches under the bus, and you know, and the head coach is always saying, "Hey, I didn't have any idea what was going on." And in this case, I mean, then I covered Kentucky for a while when Patino had come in, and it's so hard. He is such 
a detail-oriented, totally involved with every aspect of his program, works so hard at it, up early, you know, stay up late, all that. I mean, he's in, and here you, you're having a situation at Louisville where you have in the basketball dorm named for Patino's brother-in-law, you're having what the charges say, what the book says, are people who, what are they doing there, and why are they there, and how are they, you know, involved with not only the uh, the recruits, but parents of the recruits. And I know everybody at Louisville is saying, gosh, we didn't know anything about that. We And they're not necessarily saying it's not true. They're just saying, gosh, who knew? Nobody said a thing. I don't think that's going to be good enough. I don't think, you know, I think, you know this is like giving the NCAA, uh, and it's not like a, a program that they want to protect. For example, if you give them two shots and you say, okay, here's the North Carolina program, here's the Louisville program, which one takes the hit? I guarantee you it's the Louisville program. They are not going to get protected. Now, if you said, gee, I wonder if they're going to do anything to uh, North Carolina, you'd probably guess no, that they're going to try to figure out how to say, oh, that's really not a basketball issue. That was an academic issue, and we really shouldn't you know, get involved in the North Carolina case or whatever. So trying to predict the NCAA, uh, I think a very, very difficult thing to do because basically – they're making decisions in their own self-interest, the people on those committees. And a lot of it is uh, what makes them look good. What, you know, they thought they could get away with, you know, they, they'd look good in the Penn State case. They'll really come down on Penn State. And then it came out that they were making up rules and going, doing things they didn't have any right to do, and they knew they didn't have any right to do it. Whether you, whatever you thought of the Penn State situation, it was the NCAA just going off, you know, half-cocked on their own. Uh, similar to how they did in the USC case. So what will motivate them in the Louisville case or whatever? I think the, the one thing that's motivating them now is they don't want uh, some of these big-name basketball coaches to maybe be able to get away with and 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 not take responsibility. If you're going to take the you know $5 million a year in salary that somebody like a Patino gets, you probably got to take responsibility to at least know what's going on in your basketball dorm uh, with the biggest recruits that you've got coming into the program. So I wouldn't be real optimistic that they'll get a pass. Uh, but, you know, who knows where the NCAA's head is right now uh, in terms of how they uh, how they dole out punishment. I don't think they know. Yeah, I don't think they know either. I think you're exactly right on that one, Dan. All right. Well, hey, great stuff. We got to uh, talk a little about the the bye week preparation and get to all everyone's football questions and stuff. So cool. And uh, we're looking forward to see you on Thursday. Maybe we'll do a over the weekend podcast kind of reviewing the game since it's a Thursday game. Yeah, we should be able to. And I think uh, we're going to get Sark on Friday after the game. No Sunday conference call, but uh, <laughs> and I. Uh, I say that longingly, thinking about the no Sunday conference call the last time we tried one. Right. But they're promising us uh, we're going to get Sark on uh, on Friday, so uh, so we should be able to do you know do something over the weekend. 
Sounds good. All right. Well, Dan, great stuff. Thanks very much for coming on. And everyone else, you've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen to our little show here. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. And I'm going to play you a quick message from our buddy, Michael Moline at Michael Moline Real Estate. Most people know that buying or selling real estate is no small undertaking. Understanding the market value of your home, pricing, advertising, closing, and perhaps even selling personal property along the way are all examples of the real estate journey. And Michael Moline Real Estate has the experience to help make that journey an enjoyable one. Southern California real estate inventories are at historic lows, so there is no better time than now to sell your residential property. Whether you're moving into a bigger home or downsizing, personal property is often a component of the real estate estate transaction. Michael Moline Real Estate has industry expertise to help you with both your real property and your personal property as you get ready to transition. Michael Moline Real Estate specializes in properties located on the west side of Los Angeles and the southern San Fernando Valley communities. Allow Michael Moline Real Estate to give you a free comparative market analysis and home valuation so you know how much your home is worth today. Contact Michael Moline at michaelmolinerealestate.com. That's Michael, M-O-L-I-N-E, realestate.com. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. Don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your smartphone or tablet for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store. 